0: Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price.
1: Mr. Gates, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge poses a greater threat to our future.
0: Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Mori. Well, as you may know, we had a presidential election this week, with Republican Donald J. Trump coming out ahead of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Trump campaigned on a platform of clamping down on illegal immigration, repealing the Affordable Care Act, and general deregulation. And on the surface, there wasn't much discussion of energy and climate. Many observers pointed out that there were no debate questions focused on climate change. One area that did seem to play a significant role, though, U.S. coal policy. Coal currently accounts for about one-third of U.S. electricity supply, down from about half a decade ago. Trump promised throughout the campaign to bring back coal jobs and provide greater access to U.S. energy resources. He framed this as a response to what he and others in the Republican Party have deemed President Obama's war on coal, waged through actions like the Mercury Air Toxic Standards and Clean Power Plan. The fate of those actions is now certainly in question. But where is coal really headed, and what are the forces that have driven this shift in the U.S. electricity mix? With me to discuss is Steve Sakala, assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy, and Mark Templeton, associate clinical professor of law and director of the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. Steve, Mark, welcome. Thanks for having us. So you both uh, had pieces on coal uh, in in Forbes uh, last week, and uh, you know I guess uh, wanted to start with with your piece, Steve, which really takes a look at you know the forces that have been uh, the forces that have been Driving some of the changes uh, in the U.S. Coal, in U.S. coal uh, production and consumption, uh, and kind of really taking a closer look at the so-called war on coal. Um, and I thought, you know, probably the most important or the most uh, the most interesting thing that kind of jumped out at me is uh, is really. You know this your argument that while recent regulations haven't done eastern coal any favors uh the death of this industry has little to do with who's in the white house so so talk a little bit about that argument and and uh and and you know what is really challenging uh, the u.s coal industry uh well i guess number one gas
2: um the advent of hydraulic fracturing it's gotten a lot cheaper to get natural gas out of the ground and you know, for the, for the longest time, we relied on coal for the majority of our uh, electricity production and, you know, your smaller, more expensive units were the ones that you would fire up during times of peak demand. And starting in the early 2000s, really, there was a, a big build out of efficient gas-fired power plants, combined cycle uh, gas turbines that when you combine that with the low price of gas, we're now you know, running those at really high capacity and, and coal's just not turning on very often uh, in a lot of places.
0: So we had this, uh, we had this kind of shale gas boom, uh, that really got started in the, in the mid two thousands. And we had dramatic increase in us natural gas supplies and a, in a, in a sharp drop in prices. Um, and so the cost of natural gas delivered to power plants on a, on a energy, on a BTU basis really undercut coal. And of course, uh, you know, we had all this, uh, natural gas capacity, this idle capacity, uh, sitting around what, uh, I guess one. I guess a, a question might be, what's prevented coal from from competing back against natural gas? Why have coal prices, uh, you know, not been able to to uh, to really, you know, compete against against natural gas? I mean, it's
2: really cheap to get it out of the ground. Like it, what I just
0: described, the government had nothing to
2: do with really any of that. All of the, a lot of the gas coming out of the ground is coming from private lands um, in the Marcellus Shale through Texas. Uh, it's not through federal lands, and so there isn't federal policy that's responsible for uh, making it as cheap to get gas out of the ground as it is. Um, I mean, if there's one, it could be that uh, underground injection wells were exempt from the Clean Water Act, and so maybe that makes it a little bit easier to frack. Uh, but I, I don't see the, the coal industry being a big proponent of more heavy handed regulation on the gas sector. I, I, I don't see that coming down the pipe.
0: Um, so we had this, we had this you know, very large increase in natural gas production over the last 10 years. That's, that's kind of created this supply glut and, and really depressed prices. Um, what's happened with coal production? Coal production has shifted west. Uh, and there are a couple of factors
2: behind that. One is the deregulation of the rail sector has made it a lot cheaper to ship coal long distances. So there you know the majority of our coal only comes from a few places in the US, but there are coal-fired power plants everywhere, which means that a big chunk of the price of delivered coal, which is you know what you depend on for making the decision, am I going to fire up this plant or not, depends on the price of transportation. So when the price of transportation came down, you could now burn uh, coal from Wyoming over a much larger geographic area. The, this stuff is so so. It, it's 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 difficult to imagine the scale of cheap production of Wyoming coal. That uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of mountaintop removal. That in in Appalachia it's it's. It's expensive to get it out of the ground. It, you have to like think of the price of moving a mountain of stone in order to get to a seam of coal that's maybe six feet deep, right? That's a, that's a major expensive undertaking. In Wyoming, the seam is maybe 80 feet from the surface and so they're all open surface mines and those seams are 100 feet tall. Right, so they use the biggest machines in the world. Think of like a, like a huge carousel with gigantic uh, dumpster buckets in, in each of you know, the places where people would be sitting. And just turning that thing on, that's what digs, this, just scrapes it right off of the ground for 100 feet, um, it's, it's basically free.
0: So let's I guess maybe a, a way to do this is to is to kind of segment this discussion into supply and demand. So on the supply side, uh, when we think about, you know, Republicans have have uh, have well, not just Republicans, I think, um, you know, let's say coal industry supporters uh, both in the in the in industry. Um, and in government, and certainly, you know, you've had many in industry say uh, that this war has been waged against us, and our, our economic troubles are really a result of of regulatory action. But to really get at that, let's maybe think about supply and demand. So on the supply side, um, you have this great chart in your article that shows that, in fact, total U.S. coal production, at uh, in, in this, you know, uh, in in uh, mid 2015, let's say, was actually higher than total U.S. coal production in the early 1990s. And that really what's changed is the distribution. Uh,
2: The distribution also underneath that is the employment. There's been a total collapse, no question about it. Collapse in employment in the coal sector, but a lot of that has to do with this shift of coal to the West, where you only need a few guys running these machines to produce, you know, twenty times more coal in an hour than it takes to, to put a miner underground in, in West Virginia.
0: Right. So, uh, and you and you talk about that as well in your piece. Uh, uh, I think shown really. Uh, Very effectively through tons of coal per hour of labor in the u.s. uh, And broken down by uh, Appalachia versus Wyoming and you see that um, The amount of coal per hour of labor in Appalachia has been very low and kind of steady From the 1990s all the way through through 2015 At let's call it, you know about two and a half tons uh, per hour and When you look at Wyoming, it's a completely different story. It was as high as 40 tons Uh, per hour of labor in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, and is now a little bit down, but still 25 to 30 tons per, per hour of labor. Yeah, so getting getting squeezed like that in the East, I, I think there have actually been,
2: it's it's actually difficult to tell in that picture because these two lines are so far apart between Wyoming and Appalachia. But there has been some improvement in in productivity in Wyoming because they need to improve their productivity if they're going to compete with the West. But the key thing here- oh, yeah, There's been improvement in, in uh, Appalachia to yeah compete with, yeah, the West, exactly. Right? The key thing here is that it's not a question. In nowhere in here is it an issue of the government keeping the coal in the ground. Uh, You know, we can talk about, you know, sulfur regulations if you want, but it's, it's really trivial compared to the competition that's going on is for who is going to fire up their power plant and where are they buying their fuel from. And that is a competition in the coal market between the east and the west and in the electricity market between gas and
0: coal. Right, so we have these two things going on, right? So on the supply side, uh, supply hasn't really gone down, or production hasn't gone down. The distribution shifted. Uh, the As part of that shift in distribution, the coal that's being produced from Wyoming is much less labor-intensive, I mean, dramatically less labor-intensive. And so that's had an impact on coal mining jobs. Uh, but ultimately, the production, the overall production, is, is pretty much the same. Uh, so then we kind of shift to the to the demand side which is where i think most people who follow this industry have have who uh, felt kind of felt or thought you know the regulations that have been put in place over the last you know eight years or so have, have probably had the biggest impact right they've had less of an impact on potential on the production side you could argue that they've had more of, a, of an impact on the demand side and i mentioned Earlier that you know U.S. electricity generation, uh, you know uh, from coal was over 50%. Coal is over 50% of our of our total electricity generation, um, you know heading into the early 2000s, and this year is you know uh, closer to 30%. So a very sharp drop. Um, and Natural gas has kind of come in to, to take the place. Now part of that's economics, but how much of it had to do with uh, how much of it had to do with things like the mercury air toxin standards, uh, for example, or the cross state air pollution rule. I don't think very much.
2: Um, yeah, just in, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I think it's a relatively small part of the, the overall decision of, you know, am I going to dig this mine or not?
0: But oh, so not dig this mine, but necessarily, but I guess, um, uh, in terms of, uh, Consumption. Let's start. Let's just kind of stick with coal consumption. So okay. Like so switching
2: that, between coal and gas yeah, and the yeah, power exactly. sector.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So like, I mean, I don't know. And like in, and in, in Mark, like in the U.S. over the last, you know, whatever it is, let's say ten or fifteen years. I mean, Sierra Club and others have have had this Beyond Coal campaign, and right. worked actively to shut down coal plants. Right. Um, and cheap natural gas undercutting the economics of coal plants can't have helped. Um, but the but the rules had to have some. I assume like I, the mercury I think it was had the, some death
2: knell of something that's been limping along for a long time, that these the the plants that shut down were not necessarily getting used all that much. And the decision that they're being faced with this regulation is, is it worth me spending all of this money to upgrade my plant to be in compliance with the rules if I'm only going to run it, you know, 20% of the time? Right. And... And so you could say, yeah, then in, in that case, it had a big impact in the retirements, but there were a big impact in retirements of plants that weren't getting a
0: whole lot of use anyway. Right. Um, and the utility industry is not the most labor intensive uh, uh, industry in the world. Right. And so like the, the I guess the idea that um, the idea that regulations designed to deal with pollution uh in the in the power sector are were at the core of kind of this war on coal is a little misguided right because ultimately when we, see, when we hear about the war on coal well the face of that is coal companies going out of business miners being laid off et cetera. uh but if production is, is is actually not going down uh that's not that story those two things don't really go together
1: well i, I guess i th- i think that it's I mean, it's, it's a little hard to disentangle some of this. I mean, so, and, and in many ways, I agree with Steve. I, I think that it is fair, though, when you're kind of looking back to the acid rain requirements, that that really did jumpstart some of the production in the Powder River Basin. Sure. Um, and then, you know, as these things start scaling up, you get economies of scale. Oh, absolutely. You get the deregulation of the railroad industry. And so, you, you know, I th- I, it, you know um, you know, regulation uh, responds to economic pressures. It also helps to channel these things. And so you get the dynamic, okay. you know, again, back from the, from the 1990s, companies were making the decision, do I invest in the scrubbers or do I invest in, or am I going to pay more for the, for, for the coal to come? But then you get again sort of the economics of the economies of scale. I, I guess I, um, I think that with the coal fire power plants, uh there's certainly been a lot of talk about the impact of the cross-state air pollution rule and MATS and how much that was just talk. I mean, it did require them to make billions of dollars of investment, Mm -hmm. um, but I think that is, again, all in the context of natural gas coming down. And I guess I would also just say, kind of back, back to the Clean Power Plan, I think that part of the Clean Power Plan really, you know, as the EPA said, relied on here are the trends Right. Business as usual is going down, we're seeing more investment in renewables, and we're seeing get, get, you know, gas price down, so it made it easier to see the transition away from coal. If natural gas prices were 50% higher, or 100% higher than they are today, I don't think you would have seen the same system of emissions reductions proposed in the Clean Power Plan. Yeah, so sort of a funny dynamic of this
2: uh, in terms of politics is that peop- politicians on the left are really eager to claim that they are responsible for these big carbon reductions, right? They want to call it a war on coal. They say, yeah, and we're winning, right? So insofar as I'm like kind of skeptical that this really has all that much to do with with who's in the White House, both sides have a vested interest in this storyline for their constituencies. One that, you know, the government is putting them out of work and on the other side that they're reducing emissions and their respective constituencies Love that
1: story, whether it's true or not. Well, in some ways, this could actually be an interesting test going forward, depending upon what Trump does and his team do, and 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 how they and how they do it. Um, because if the clean power plan is pulled. Uh, then we will actually see. Okay, what, what, what you know, what really was the impact of the clean power plan um, versus what were the results of the you know lower natural gas prices? So most of the projections that are out there kind of show that the clean power plan
0: isn't really expected to have as dramatic of an impact as people as people make it out to to, to be. Right, that the a lot of the reductions in in uh, in coal-fired electricity
1: generation and in overall CO two pollution have already been achieved. Um, I I think that's right. I mean, I I think uh, if I recall the charts when the plan was announced, which... Would now be different because the economics are different but basically i there wasn't that much of a difference between the business as usual case and the case with the clean power plant roughly like 2025. it was only sort of in by 2030 that you saw a difference now it's partly because of the states uh, a lot of the states have renewable portfolio standards or energy efficiency standards out to that kind of 2025 period which was also helping to push some of this uh, along as well.
0: But so this doesn't paint a very, I mean, it doesn't paint a very optimistic picture in terms of what Trump can really do to, to quote unquote, sort of bring the mining jobs back. Right. I mean, you um, the story that comes out of your piece, Steve, is that this kind of set of market forces have really combined to drive down employment in the in the U.S. coal industry. Uh, and that uh, even though production is up or production is is roughly the same, that the number of people doing it are are, are far fewer, and that uh, you know the forces that led to that are not really going away. Right, we have we're going to continue to probably have cheap natural gas. The estimates of U.S. recoverable shale gas reserves are pretty high, um, and the Powder River Basin is you know it seems like extremely prolific uh, coal producing coal producing basin. And so, uh, in that sense, it it, it seems like. There's not really that much that that a president-elect Trump can do to to bring back those coal jobs. You know, I guess a question would be, what can he do? What are what are the levers that he
1: can pull to try to 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 revitalize U.S. coal production? Uh, so um, I, I think that if the clean power plan is killed, then maybe there will be some delay in some of the retirements for some of the plants that have been announced or that were kind of accelerated. And so maybe that keeps kind of the demand up a, a little bit more than would have been otherwise. At least that's what the uh, U.S. EIA is, is, uh, is saying. I don't know about your views about production. My view about employment is that he actually should do a, a number of the things that President Obama and the Power Plus and that Hillary Clinton in her plan proposed because it's actually about Helping communities and miners and miners' families transition, because basically what I'm hearing from Steve is that these jobs are not coming back in mass. Yeah, I mean the
2: the funny thing is that they've they've now also got pressure on the renewables side as the price of renewables, is, construction costs of of renewables, is coming down. So the I mean really the first thing that comes to mind is that. The only thing that's gonna help these coal-fired power plants stay open and keep operating is if the price of natural gas goes up. That's the only thing that's gonna make it economical to be firing up these plants. So you say, okay, well, what's gonna drive up the price of natural gas? It's nothing the federal government can do about fracking. It's not there. Uh, But the price of natural gas is half of the price in Europe and a quarter of the price in, in Japan. Uh, And that's because it's been tough to export it. That prospectively, there's room for the federal government to encourage natural gas exports. And encouraging natural gas exports will raise the price of natural gas here in the United States. But that has a limited impact because raising the price of natural gas also makes it more profitable to build renewables. This is the thing that has been sort of drowning... Uh, investments in renewables that, you know, the drop in price of natural gas has made it unprofitable to build wind turbines on their own in a lot of areas. All right, well, so if you now have this export natural gas policy in order to help coal, that also makes it more profitable to build wind. And now, listen, if you're not getting it from one side, you're gonna get it from the other. Right.
1: Well, and and what about more federal leasing related to? I mean, you were talking about leasing on private lands. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you imagine there would be more pr- pressure from if, the federal leasing side to, to for if, for gas? If there's
2: if there's a problem of the price being too low,
1: well, yeah, you, yeah, of course, you're right. right.
2: You're not going to fix a supply pl- problem. More absolutely, supply. Absolutely yeah. Not, right. But they could like clamp. Down on federal leasing for offshore gas or something like that to drive the price up, but again, that's not consistent with the, you know, view that you can just, you know, step on the gas for all of these things and everybody's going to win.
1: Yeah, I guess that was more of my point. I've, I've, yeah. it, it, it seems that you know, Trump really is of the, you know, all all forms of energy. Yeah you know, full throttle and, then, and then, but they compete against each what other. What about so
0: global markets though? So there's this question, right, of we're producing, we're still producing just as much coal as we were, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we're consuming, it seems, uh, substantially less. Yeah. So that coal's got to be going home. somewhere. Yep. Uh, and how, you know, I know, I know that, um, I know that some of the U.S. coal companies made a big bet on, uh, on exports to China, on coal exports to China um, and not just for power generation, but also for you know per, uh, manufacturing steel and metallurgical coal. Uh, and the market dynamics kind of shifted a little bit on them after they made those big bets. But, um, you know, is there is is the do you think there's reason or do you or do you think that many in the US coal industry are kind of banking on a, a global market?
2: There's a lot of opposition to export terminals for, for coal. I mean, there have been for, for gas, too, but um, I, I think there's, there's even more attraction for preventing export terminals from, from being installed for, for coal. Uh, but, you know, that's, that is one way that you keep the coal coming out of the ground, is that you, you send it abroad. The funny thing is, in terms of, to, to go back to talking about jobs, there are a lot of wind jobs, Um, I I wish I knew that figure off the top of my head, but in in all of uh, West Virginia and Kentucky, it might have been even just the whole Appalachian uh, region, there were 60,000. That's nothing. Uh, I looked it up in in the first draft of the piece. Uh, I was comparing that to the employment of Toys R Us. Right, like somehow this, like, this one store has this outsized influence in our idea of what American industry
1: is. Right. There are just not that many people doing it. But now, so Mark, in but your piece, they're, you they're just, make this they're point. Just, they're, they're just all concentrated in a handful of states. But,
2: <laughs> it, but that's the thing, they, it, like if you put all of those 60,000 workers in West Virginia, that would be 10% of the labor force of West Virginia.
0: Yeah, uh, but though, in Mark, you make or Mark in your piece. You make this point, right? That in some places are, those jobs are good jobs. Yes, that's uh, right. And so, relatively speaking, and so the uh, you know the you make the case in Illinois comparing the the salary of uh, yeah. Um, so
1: in Illinois, so in Illinois, it's roughly a ten uh, uh, thousand dollar the kind of if, if you look at a a range of jobs in the coal industry, you can kind of say roughly on average, it's roughly $10,000 above the average income um, across the entire state. And I would also say that if you you can look at where these jobs are located, the other jobs are primarily farming or working for the government, um, whether as teachers or there's a lot of, you know, discussion about locating prisons in these areas for government jobs. Um, And, uh, working at the Walmarts uh, which have really kind of transformed and decimated the small businesses, so you have to look at the alternatives for people in these communities and these are uh, good you know high paying relatively high paying jobs so
0: is that a is that a potential uh, is that a potential kind of i don't know policy pathway or window for a potential or for the Trump administration to really um, you know to focus on that you know that i'm sure that there's going to be a big effort to to expedite permitting uh at blm to open up federal areas to production but it seems like in this conversation is really reinforced kind of you know my view that the market forces are really stacked up against coal and that a year or two three years into his administration and they're going to start to see that, uh, you know, just by opening up more areas uh, and to even relaxing, uh, you know, canceling the clean power plant, et cetera, that it's not going to bring back thousands of coal jobs. And, you know, you could imagine that the, them needing to kind of pivot to a plan B. I mean, as plan B, uh, you know, you talk in your piece about revitalizing some of these communities or ways to invest in these communities, um, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that it seems to me has been talked a lot about in, in trade theory uh, and, in, and just in you know, uh, technology and economic development in general, that you know, we have this idea that uh, we can deal with the distributional consequences of things that are good for the economy overall by retraining people and moving them to new industries. I mean, you mentioned wind jobs earlier. Like how easy is it to go from digging coal to working in a wind farm? How do we grease the, the, the system to make that transition happen?
1: Well, I guess, okay, so I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one, um, the that's why you've got training programs to actually train people uh, to do these these different kinds of jobs. I think one of the things which is challenging, though, is that these jobs are not necessarily located where these people are right now. Right. And so, if part of the concern is about the communities, um, then are you in? Uh, by training people for different jobs, you give them a job and maybe benefit their family, but that they're you're, they're going to move, right? Either the breadwinner is going to move to another area, the family stays there, that creates stresses and strains on the family unit and on the society. Does the family leave entirely? So you have more depopulation. I mean, I think that it's important to actually look into the context uh, of more general kind of rural depopulation in the United States. So I think you you raise a very fair point, Sam, which is uh, you know, how much, uh, are these programs going to help? Um,
0: that's well, a- not so much, not so much how, how are they going to help, but wh- have we learned anything to help us make them more effective? Right. Uh, I, I think like, I think I don't doubt, uh, you know, that Secretary Clinton or, or, or current president Obama, um, are sincere in their desire to make these programs work. Um, but I don't know. Is there evidence that, that do we have successful retraining programs on a scale like like this? I mean, I, I, it's not a million jobs, but 60,000 workers and in, in co-workers in Appalachia. It's it's not it's not, you know, it's not a million workers, but but it's still a, a decent scale. I mean to uh, to shift these communities and they, that have had this kind of way of life for for a century or whatever. What's our do we know what works and what doesn't work? I mean, a, a tricky thing is
2: that if you are a local politician in this area, you want a place-based policy. You, right. you, don't, you don't want, want, people want these moving. people relocating, right? right? There, there goes, you know... Your tax base. Exactly. Um, so, as you were saying, you know, there isn't a market for wind in Appalachia. It just doesn't... It doesn't blow. Um, so, what are they going to do instead?
1: I think, you know... There are a handful of place-based things you can do, such as looking at tourism kinds of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the bourbon industry is great. I'm I'm sorry? sorry? The
2: bourbon industry is great.
1: Well, you know, and there has been um, not offshoring, but uh, outsourcing, right, to... You know, so I know there are law firms in Washington D.C. which have their back office basically operated in West Virginia, which is a a mm-hmm. lower cost community. You can have mail distribution centers in these places as well. Um, that's not going to get you necessarily the same high paying jobs, and you're not going to get as many of them. So I think that there's going ha- uh, to, I think there's going to be more rural depopulation probably. But I, but I think it's, I still think that it is important important to give these communities the, you know, resources, and opportunities to think about economic planning and to think about what they want their future to be like. I think it just needs to be realistic that not everybody is going to, uh, you know, be able to have all these distribution centers or high-tech industries in their communities.
0: Um, you know, you talk in your piece a little bit about some other options, too, right? Um, You know, there's this sort of top-down focus, federal government. Uh, You you recommend um, a czar for coal communities? I I do, because I think there's just a
1: lot of different programs that are out there right now. So you've got different things which are are being done through the Commerce Department, through through, um, uh, HUD, um, through uh, other kinds of grants. And so my concern is that the communities uh, don't all have the kind of capacity that they need to access all of these different grants. And so there's been some um, forward movement on that front. At least um, the Rockefeller Family Fund is providing grants to some non-governmental organizations to help these communities that don't have capacity or the full capacity that they need to access these. I think again, what a czar can can do is help keep this front front of, of mind, right? So a new administration is just going to have a lot of different priorities. And if it and if you've got all these dif- different departments saying, hey, here's something we can do, six months later you've got kind of the new flavor of the day, and you need somebody, you know, at the White House in some way to sort of say, okay, actually this still is important, we need to continue these commitments, and not just make them kind of like, you know, a press release. Right. right. So that's kind of the point of the, the thinking we need a czar for coal communities.
0: Four years from now, bets, coal production in the U.S., up or down?
1: be a lot of
2: export terminals if they're going to get it up. It's only going to come from exports.
1: Mark? Uh, well, I think jobs will be down.
0: Do you think coal jobs will be down?
1: I think coal jobs will be down.
0: Then generation? Oh, way down. Continued, you think? Yeah, continued yeah, to corns? For sure. Absolutely. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Steve. I think that's all the time we have for now. Make sure to subscribe to the Off the Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Sam Ori.